trying to promote your ministry and move forward while the kids are asking for snacks. It's pretty awesome. <laughs> What's that? Yeah, the epitome of parenthood, exactly. It was so cool. What we want to do as we're introducing missionaries to faith um, is to do whatever we can to have you have a deeper connection with them. It's so difficult when they're halfway across the globe uh, to know them, to be updated on their lives and things. But we really believe that a, a connected church to missions activity and the gospel being spread around the world is uh, is where health comes from and it inspires us here at home to do the same. Um, one thought I had as we were receiving the announcement and watching the video and things is we have put a missions wall out in the entryway that's um, got those kind of glass-looking plaques and things with the descriptions of the ministries, the names of the people and everything. If you're thinking to yourself, how do I pray for them throughout the week? I, probably some of it is in your handout this morning. But just in case it isn't or you need some kind of reminder, just walk by there with your phone and snap a picture of their plaque. And uh, pray for them throughout the week, if you would. And we're going to do our best to continue to update you on their progress and on their needs and things. But again, it's a turning point when we start taking the initiative and the action to remember them without them having to prompt us, which is difficult for missionaries to do with so many supporting churches. So let's keep that in mind. Let's establish these really personal and direct relationships with people that we would otherwise not see very often. The Lord connects us that way. So speaking of people that we haven't seen in a while, I want to welcome back the Hankers. It was nice to see Scott and Pam. And uh, yes, okay, I guess you get an applause. That's good on you guys. And and Scott didn't waste any time. Like he just got in on a flight probably this morning. I don't know. And he's playing guitar on the worship team already. So I don't know. Pretty cool. Um, all right. Well, um, this morning we are getting into a huge passage of scripture. We are coming to Acts chapter three. The practice of our church is to move kind of sequentially through a book of the Bible. The Bible itself is a containing of 66 individual books. And we are reading this um, account of the spread of the gospel message in Jerusalem, then in Judea, that would be that surrounding area, and then to the uttermost parts of the earth. And we've only just begun. So if you're new at faith this morning, you haven't missed my, well, you've missed a lot, <laughs> but we haven't got far down the path yet. So there's a lot more to come. So you're coming at a good time. We're only in Acts chapter three, and I'm going to try to tackle the entire chapter. So that means there'll be some sections that we'll be reading kind of like, you know, in big, big pieces and then commenting as we go. So not sure how it'll go exactly, but bear with me and uh, we'll see how we get through this together. But the big subject in this chapter that Dr. Luke has written uh, for us here is this idea of a miracle being performed by the Apostle Peter, which hadn't taken place to this point. And this miracle is pointing us to the way that God has designed the mission to flow out of and the aspects of that miracle uh, and how we're to apply it to our lives. But but Luke is also writing in this in the context of showing somebody who didn't know the whole story or needed proofs of it. And so Luke is writing from a, a defense standpoint, saying this is the account that happened. This is the way that the Holy Spirit is calling it back to remembrance for us. These are the details of how this whole, unthing, whole thing unfolded. Peter, though, is presenting and speaking to a, a predominantly Jewish audience. Because remember, the gospel started to spread 
to the Jew first and then to the Greek and to the rest of the world. And so it's important for us to remember who's witnessing this miracle and what they're supposed to be seeing from the Lord's work on account of being in the front row to all that God's doing. And we have to be careful sometimes when we throw out the word miracle, it's kind of this thing that we, we do a lot in sports or we do in other ways where miracle, we start to water down in a sense. And we, I know we live in a highly scientific age to where miracles now are snarked at and laughed at and things. So it's a difficult tension. How do we keep awareness that miracles really do happen? And at the same time, recognizing that not everything that is cool or amazing is a miracle. You know, step, you know, just what we often say is the birth of a baby is a miracle. And in a sense, what we really mean by it's really amazing how it happens, but it's a normal, repetitive, medically proven, scientifically backed process. We know how that happens. Though some, I guess, would accuse me of not knowing how that happens because I would have put a stop to it. I don't Wow, that got risque quick in church. I apologize. I Man, stick to the notes. But the pattern that we're seeing here is that an authentic miracle, the real miracle that Peter is performing by the power of God is before an audience that needs confirmation of the truth of which these men are speaking and will continue to speak and will even put pen to parchment and start recording for us what the New Testament is that we have in our hands today. So this miracle and the subsequent miracles confirm the truth of the message that's being said. So we're going to see those things linked all the time. In other words, they weren't just like throwing healing at places without a purpose, not because it was fun to do, but because it was something that the Lord had planned for a time and for a reason. For us this morning, though, what I'd like us to really contemplate is that the only wholeness we will ever know is found in the name of Jesus. And the name of Jesus is our theme this morning and really for the next couple of chapters here, because that is the name that that stamps its authenticity and and allows us to um, uh, conduct whatever we do by the authority of one higher than us. And so you're going to see that they're making a big deal about the name of Jesus. And we'll try to break that down as best as we can this morning. In fact, the brokenness that you and I are born in, which is demonstrated, illustrated by this story here this morning, is the brokenness that we will remain in for the rest of our lives and all of eternity until we encounter the name of Jesus. For those who have never heard the name of Jesus, their brokenness will continue. For those that have never received the name of Jesus in their lives and in their hearts, their current condition since birth will remain for all of eternity. Let's go into our text this morning and begin in verse 1 of chapter 3. Now Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer. Just a quick pause. I'll do this from time to time. It's interesting, isn't it, that while they have been freed, if you will, from the constraints of religion, they haven't dropped all of the practice of it. 
that being faithful Jews, they are continuing to attend temple. They are continuing to pray as the custom throughout the day, the three different prayer points of the day. They are also probably using the temple as an opportunity to teach and proclaim and to evangelize for the name of Jesus. So all of this is still happening, even though their their savior has been resurrected and they're no longer bound to the temple practices as a matter of religion. So verse two, in a, in a, uh, oh, and it's at the ninth hour, which is three o'clock, basically on Jewish time, around three in the afternoon. And I wonder if, this is just sort of the sidetracking here of filling this out a little bit for us, I wonder how much would resonate in their minds, we're only a couple months removed from the time at the ninth hour that Jesus cried, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? They're only a couple months removed from the time that Jesus had said, it is finished. I have, I have finished what I have come to do. And he breathed his last. I don't know how many of you went through various um, situations or kind of traumatic experiences that were t- bound to a date or a clock time or something. And you just notice that time all the time being still fresh on their mind or every three, three o'clock in the afternoon, would they remember the clouds rolling in and the sun just hiding and, and, and the shaking of the ground and all that took place in verifying that this was the son of God that they crucified. So in verse two, and a man lame from birth was being carried whom they had laid daily at the gate of the temple that is called the beautiful gate to ask alms of those entering the temple. This is a common practice. This is wise strategy if you want to raise some funds. He went there every day because it was effective. He got carried there every day because it paid off. Not because he had other options and stuff. I know often we're skeptical of that kind of thing this day. But this guy had no choice, had no other recourse. He fortunately had those that would bring him to that place to be able to participate. But the religiously minded Jew was walking through that gate, this amazingly gorgeous gate. Uh, There's a rendering of it somewhere. I think we have. I'm sorry, I'm bouncing around a little bit on the scriptures. There's a rendering of it. This is estimated about 70 feet tall covered in bronze and and the historians would say that this was the most elaborate looking gate even over those that were covered in gold and silver and things and so you would imagine that walking into this beautiful scenario that you're feeling a little bit more connected to your god you're feeling a little bit more like this is what life's all about and so when somebody's sitting there saying hey could you help me out there's a little bit more compulsion on your heart to say i should really do that shouldn't i And in fact, it was part of their religious system to say, well, God would be more impressed with me if I were to give. And so they would participate in that kind of thing from a religious duty aspect. So that's why he's there. That's why he's there so um, often and so regularly. So verse three says, seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked to receive alms. And so this man is lame from birth. We understand he is crippled from birth, needing to be carried to this beautiful gate because there is no way of getting himself there. This morning, I'd be asking us to consider who am I in this story? Not which character do I play, but who am I in the life, the experience, the face of this man who needed to be carried to the gate each and every day, unable to help himself, unable to fix his own condition. For those of you that are familiar with the gospel, you're making the obvious point already in your minds. Romans 5 says, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, 
And so death spread to all men because all sinned. We say it here over and over and over again because it's so clear to us from Scripture that because Adam and Eve handed their sin down to us because we were all Adam and Eve, if you put us in the garden, same result every time. And so death passed upon all men because sin had passed upon all men. We are born in that condition, unable to carry ourselves to the gate unable to clean ourselves up, unable to heal ourselves. And so Peter takes notice of this man as he's going into the gate. His eyes of mercy perceive the brokenness of this man. We see this in verse 4. Peter directed his gaze at him, as did John, and said, look at us. And he fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. But Peter said, I have no silver and gold. But what I do have, I give to you. There's a lot of interesting things going on here, and some of which we could probably over-apply, but some of this is just available to us on the surface. Peter notices the condition of this man. Now, like I said, we're only a couple of months, a few months removed from the time that Jesus would have been passing through this gate. This guy is a professional at this location. Jesus walked by this man, no doubt, over and over again. We know Jesus had the capacity to heal. We know that he had the desire to heal. Yet he passed on this man time and time again. We can speculate, and and part, part of what I'm already saying is speculation, but it seems pretty logical and it seems pretty... Uh, consider it to think that that Jesus would have noticed this man would have been in that vicinity. So I would like us to think about from the standpoint that God's timing is determined by his wisdom, his plan, not our urgency, not our begging, not our demand of him. He had something else in mind that would allow him to walk by the need of this very persistent person. Time and time again, he would walk by it. Would he not be setting up the mission of the apostles? Would he not be leaving some of the miracles behind so that the apostles could participate them and authenticate their message? Because he needed that message. I'm speaking in human terms here. Jesus needed that message to carry on with authority and with power. And so if Jesus just healed everybody, especially those that were recognized then he would have cleaned it all up. And the apostles, in a sense, would have been like, well, what do we do now? Of course, there would have been things for them to do, but this is an opportunity for them to participate in the same kind of healing that Jesus would have conducted at the time where it was needed most. And actually, we're going to be hearing a little bit about this kind of his his gaze being directed at the need, because uh, in a couple of weeks, Jeremy Jones will be walking us through the later parts of chapter four, where we'll see that in the community of the church, there were no needs happening. Why? Because people were noticing what those needs were. I don't know about you, but I, I find that most of the things that I don't do that I probably should do are simply caused or at least snowballed by the fact that I didn't take some time to look around and see what was needed of me. We like to use that old illustration of like, you know, you don't know every car on the road, but you stop shop, you start shopping for one car and you see them everywhere. It's just the way it is. We have a a blinders kind of thing on our human condition that until something matters to us, we don't really recognize that it's out there. 
And this is, I think, what Peter is going through. He's been through his own shame. He's been through his own repair. He's been through his own rescue by the forgiveness of Jesus. And now he's looking for who else needs this? Because this is amazing. I want others to participate in the same restoration that I've found. Peter's not just walking, waking up in the morning going, I wonder who we can shock with a really cool trick today. He's, he seems like the text isn't saying that there's a whole lot of thought that went into this. He noticed it and he acts on it. And he says, but I don't have what you're expecting of me. Isn't it interesting too that the beggar wasn't making eye contact. He had been doing the same thing every day. He knew what his spiel was. He knew what his request was. What if the cup was just being waved over his head and he's not looking around? We don't know. But we know that eye contact and is so closely related to uh, having hope or or being uh, confident in things. And so to not be able to make eye contact with those that you're asking for help from would indicate the hopelessness and the shame that no doubt this man was feeling. He was locked in a routine. This was an every other day to him. And, uh, and that was going to change because Peter noticed the situation. And I just want to present to you that if you have yet to encounter Jesus, you have not yet invited the name of Jesus and the forgiveness of Jesus into your life. If you've not locked eyes with him, spiritually speaking, this is how you see him. You come to him in your recognition of your own brokenness. You come to him really not even knowing or expecting all that he can do for you. This is the surprise of salvation that happens. But it comes through, and we talked about this last week, it comes through the process of facing our own guilt and shame. Not dancing around it because God is so gracious to us. He walks us through the the consequence of our sin to introduce us to the forgiveness that he offers us. And that we would see that our only, that our brokenness is only healed in the name of Jesus. So Peter has said, I don't have what you're looking for. In verse six, he says, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have, I give to you in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and he raised him up and immediately his feet and ankles were made strong and leaping up. He stood and just imagine this, play this out in your mind. He has never been able to do this. How many days has he fantasized about it? How many different ways has he thought about it? If I ever was fixed or made whole, maybe he's given up on that notion. But there was probably a time, especially as a kid, if I could just do what the other kids were doing, what would be the first thing you would do? And he's leaping already. You know, we get out of bed and we have sore back. I'm like, man, if I was 15 again, the things I would do. And he's been imagining his whole entire life what I would do first if someone could just fix this condition of mine or if I was never born in this situation, what I would do. And he takes advantage of it immediately. Verse eight and leaping up, he stood and began to walk and he entered the temple with them walking and leaping and praising God. He's still not done. He's cartwheeling. He's jumping and spread eagling and all these kinds of things. And they're probably like people in the temple like what is going on? What is he doing? And then they start to recognize him in verse 10 as the one who sat at the beautiful gate of the temple asking for alms. Now their minds are blown. They were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. You and I would have been in the same boat. 
even if we believe this is what Jesus does, when you see it, you're like, okay, I really needed to see that because I, I thought I believed it, but now that I see it in action, I don't even know if I did. I love verse 11. He says, while he clung to Peter and John, he's not weak and feeble. He's leaping and jumping around, but he's like, these are my guys now. They're not going anywhere. I'm with them. Look what they did for me. He's clinging to them. He's not letting them out of his sight. All the people utterly astounded ran together to them in the portico of uh, called Solomon or Solomon's porch. And when Peter saw it, when he saw what was developing and, and going, see, I don't think this was Peter's plan. He didn't say, let's go do something really mind blowing and then we'll be able to preach to them. Peter saw the need, was moved by the spirit to do the thing that he was moved to do. He acted in obedience and all the results were just something that the Lord was bringing to his attention. He says, I think there's an opportunity here. So when Peter saw it in verse 12, he addressed the people. Men of Israel, why do you wonder at this or why do you stare at us as though by our own power or piety we've made him walk? Why do you stare at us? This isn't by our own power. Is We talk about repentance and we talk about change in people's lives, but you really see it when it's become a new nature to somebody. You see what's really transformed in their life when, when the pressure's on or things are exciting and you see them react differently than they would have before. This is exactly what we're seeing with Peter. Peter's response before his shame before his forgiveness before his new life in christ before the resurrected christ reappeared before all that peter was i got this i can handle this let's let's uh, get an audience here and i'm going to speak at him i'm going to tell him what's up and they're all going to be really impressed with how committed i am to jesus but i'm somehow going to make it about me that's who peter was and he was great at it he's not that way anymore Now he's saying, why are you looking at me like it's something I did? There is a humility that is pouring out of Peter that if we quickly skim over this, we won't appreciate. Today in our culture, we hear things like, you know, hey, hasn't Peter suffered long enough? I mean, doesn't he deserve a win? Let him have his victory lap. He's really, you know, poor guy. He was down and everything. And Peter doesn't take the victory lap. Because he's led by the Spirit, which is what we've talked about in the past as we were talking about the movement of the Holy Spirit, the movement of the Holy Spirit always points to the glory of Jesus Christ. Peter is full of the Holy Spirit. Everything that's going to come out of his mouth is going to point to the Savior, to the one who's doing the miracle, the one who's empowered him. So if we're breaking down this miracle just a little bit, we see that it was unexpected that this guy was basically a participant. He was a real person and God cares about his heart. But in the context of our story, he's kind of a prop, right? We don't see because of his great faith that he was healed. We do see that on other occasions when Jesus says, because of your faith, go and be, be well. But in this particular instance, just to mess with our minds when we think we can control this kind of thing. God's like, no, I'm just going to do this. And he doesn't even know what's going to happen to him. So it's unexpected. It wasn't his great faith that got him healed. It was instantaneous. It wasn't one of these things like, ah, yeah, give me a day or two. I'll get on my legs and everything. He's cartwheeling and leaping and jumping right away. 
My mind went to uh, when Jesus healed a blind man and, um, and, and it took a while. I'm going to use just those phrases. It took a while for the healing to take effect. You know, he sent him away, did the hell, you know, whatever, rub it in the eyes or something. I forget exactly all the details, but it took a while. But you read everything else around there and the circumstances were so unique that that process needed to take place the way that it did. But when Jesus heals, he heals just like that. And this is what Peter is performing, if you will, to this man. And it's complete. I'm saying all this and I'm slowing this down because some of us have seen the healing that goes on in the, in the church circles sometimes where it's like, did it really happen? Did, was that emotion that healed somebody for five minutes and then they went back to their condition or... Was it one of those tricks of the mind? It was like, I feel better right now. And because the guy's got a microphone and the cool big hair and all that sort of stuff that it, it worked, but then it just doesn't, you know, this is instantaneous. It's unexpected, but it's complete. I like how Dr. Luke is doing the details in his writing about what happens to his ankles and, and all the strength is returning to his feet and all these kinds of things. But most importantly, what we see is that this miracle is performed in Jesus name. And, and, and again, the Jewish audience has to wrestle with this a little bit. They're saying that this is done in the name of the of the crucified blasphemer. The one who, by all accounts, as far as we're concerned, is dead. It's in his name that they're doing this. So the conundrum is, is that we believe that only God is the one who can perform miracles. He either performs them through, through a prophet or he performs them by his own hand directly. But only God empowers miracles. And you're saying that Jesus did and you are doing it right in front of us as Jesus associates. So again, messing with their foundation and shaking them to their core. So we come into verse 13. He continues to address them. He says, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers, a very Hebrew wording here. He wants his Hebrew audience to say, look, this applies to you. This isn't some newfangled thing that's disconnected from you. This is for you. That God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob and our fathers glorified his. Now listen to these names of Jesus glorified his servant. There's one. Jesus, whom there's two, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. But you denied the three holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. Remember, we said last week that that you can you can deliver truth, hard hitting right between the eyes kind of truth, but you don't have to be a snarky jerk about it. I mean, Peter is is hitting them hard with this. You asked for a murderer to be released instead of him. Verse 15, and you killed the author of life, his fourth name for Jesus, whom God raised from the dead. To this, we are witnesses and his name by faith in his name has made this man strong, whom you see and know. And the faith that is through Jesus has given the man this perfect health in the presence of you all. He, he really wants them to do business with the fact that this same Jesus, whom we were all complicit in his murder, 
even making him stay captive by exchanging him for the freedom of a murderer whom nobody wanted in their society. But given the option of taking this guy who claims to be the Messiah, yeah, let's take the murderer. He's shaming them for those decisions. And he's saying, yeah, it's in his name that we're doing these things. We're so far removed from that time and we're so far removed from the sensitivities of these things that we just throw out the name of Jesus because our experience doesn't bring all these things to mind. It doesn't cause us to go through this kind of um, uh, introspection as to whether or not his name means all that it does mean to us. But they couldn't hide from it. We shared a quote last uh, week from John Stott who said that baptism in Christ's name, which is applied here as well, means living by his authority, acknowledging his claims, subscribing to his doctrine, engaging in his service, and relying on his merits. So when we say the name of Jesus, those are the things that we're saying when we're living by his name. And oftentimes it seems as though today that we're just throwing his name on things. We want it to be almost like sprinkling holy water on something that we want blessed or fixed or something. In the name of Jesus, I claim my checkbook has been healed. Said, well, stop spending over here. The name of Jesus isn't just throwing money in your account like that. We sometimes say, if I just throw out the name of Jesus or my sickness is gone in the name of Jesus. But really what we're talking about is we're, we're saying it's by his authority. He can do what he wants when he wants. And we submit to that. We can ask him, heal me of this, fix my checkbook situation, get me out of. We can ask him those things, but I'm doing it as one. I'm speaking to one who has the authority over my life. He's going to do what he wants, when he wants, how he wants. I'm acknowledging his claims. I know that he's powerful. I know that he's the son of God. I know that he has dominion over the entire created order. I'm subscribing to his doctrines. I'm living the way that he had had uh, conducted himself, but also explained the kingdom of God come to earth. And I'm engaging in his service, service to him, but service like him. Humble and obedient. And I'm relying on his merits. My salvation, my right standing with God is because he did the right thing at the right time and I couldn't do it for myself. So Peter says, we are doing all this by the name of Jesus. And if you need to know who I'm talking about, let me throw a bunch of names at you, he's saying. He said he's the servant, which would be a familiar title for the Messiah if they were paying attention. In Isaiah 42, the prophet says, Behold my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. I've put my spirit upon him. He'll bring forth justice to the nations. He'll not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He'll faithfully bring forth justice. He'll grow not, he'll, he will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands wait for his law. They were awaiting a Messiah who would be a servant, but they would serve the things they wanted him to do. And as we've talked about over and over, he didn't do it that way. He gives them the name Jesus, of course, which they would know. It's the, the Greek form of the Hebrew name Joshua, which they would recognize and equate to that, that the Lord is my salvation. 
came across a quote from MacArthur this week that I just loved and needed to use it. So um, it says this, to imagine a Jesus who is not the Savior is as foolish as to imagine a Shakespeare who is not a writer or a Rembrandt who is not a painter. His name is Jesus, not because he is our example, guide, leader, or friend, though he is all of those things. His name is Jesus because he's our Savior. I would challenge you this morning that whenever you hear or say the name Jesus, equate it to the Savior of your soul, the Savior of your sins and your appreciation, your glowing praise, your leaping through the temple courts will be uncontainable as you think about that. Peter calls him the holy and righteous one. He's holy because he's been set apart for God's use. He's separated from everything else going on around him, but he's separate by nature, but he's also separate by mission. He came to do a unique thing that only he could do. He's righteous because he's our perfect, pure one. There's a way of looking at that word that underscores the fact that he's innocent of any crime. He's not guilty of any of the things that you and I are guilty of. And we're guilty of it all. We had this great discussion around our table at the uh, Disciple Growth Track this week where we were talking about that, that aspect. Someone had brought it up, that aspect of the scripture that says if you've offended the law in one tiny little piece, you're guilty of the entire thing. Jesus has accomplished it all, carried the, the, the sin and shame for us, but he didn't do any of it. He wasn't guilty of any of it. And Peter says that the audience, those that were present and those that were connected to and related to, they denied him and they asked for the murderer to be exchanged for the one who wasn't guilty of anything. And do we not see an obvious parallel in that, that here's Barabbas, who is the scorn of the society and everyone's afraid of him being released and his danger. And they're like, yeah, we'll take him guilty of murder and guilty of the ugliest forms of crimes in exchange for the purity of the righteous one. What happened there physically is a picture of what was about to happen for us all in salvation. For we will all be Barabbases. So Peter says, this is the author of life. You killed the author of life, the originator or the pioneer of life. And this is interesting here. He keeps rolling out these paradoxes. He says that, that uh, God has exalted a servant which we wouldn't think of that, that uh, they delivered or they handed over the deliverer of the souls that the holy or righteous one would be rejected and traded for a murderer. And they killed the author of life. He's not going easy on them. And I think by implication, he's not going easy on us. Jesus says in John 11, that I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. Jesus is the author of life. And ironically, for a moment, we killed him. Pardon me. Lost my place. I numbered my pages, though. Fear not. There is a fix coming to this conundrum. All right. Peter gives us one other name a little bit later in verse 18, and we'll read that in its context here in a moment. But he calls Jesus God's Christ. We often think that Christ is Jesus' last name, but really it's a title meaning anointed king. 
He is one who deserves our full allegiance. He is the Hebrew Messiah. He is the true heir to the throne of David. He is the Christ whom God the Father sent. In the next chapter, we'll hear that famous phrase that there's no other name under heaven whereby we must be saved. That is the name of Jesus because he is the Christ. Lastly, I'd say that our brokenness is only completely healed by the name of Jesus. Let's continue reading on verse 17. And now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did also your rulers. But what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets that his Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. Repent, therefore, and turn back that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. Moses said, now this is their boy. Moses carries the authority in the ears of the people, of course. And so Moses says, as Peter quotes, the Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. You shall listen to him in whatever he tells you. But ironically, Peter is saying you missed it. It, God raised up his Christ that there would be a prophet like Moses that came and you would have had to have heard what he said and acted on it. But Peter's saying, and you missed it, you killed him and the deed is done. You shall listen to him in whatever he tells you, verse 23. And it shall be that every soul who does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed from the people. And all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and those who came after him also proclaimed these days, these days that we're in right now. You are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant that God made with your father, saying to Abraham, and in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. God has raised up his servant, sent him to you first to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. In theology, we call sins of omission and sins of commission the kind of things we could shorten it by saying that the law gets us coming or going. We either omit to do the things that we should do or we commit the wrong things that we should not do. And Peter is pointing out that both things happen. He says, in your ignorance, which is a very gracious and relational way of saying to his brothers and sisters who are Jews themselves, saying, look, we missed it. And, and, and you get a pass in the sense of understanding uh, amongst all of us that, yes, it would be difficult to see some of these signs. As I look at the fulfillment of prophecy, I think, except for the grace of God, except, except for the spirit of God illuminating these things, how would anybody have seen all this coming together? So there's a, again, I'm using a her, human term here, an excuse, if you will. You missed it in ignorance, but he doesn't let off the gas pedal that says, but that doesn't make us innocent of missing it. We should have known. We can be guilty of both. We can be guilty of not doing the things that we should do, and we can be guilty of doing the things that we should not do. And Peter is pointing out that they were both. This is how Peter exhorts them. Remember last week we said that tiny little word that Peter is exhorting them by delivering harsh truth, but in a relational way. Come here. You need to hear me say this. 
He's not trying to isolate them. He's not trying to poke them in the eye. He's not trying to upset them and get a reaction, even though he will. What he's trying to get is for them to see, wow, we really did do this. And when they come to terms of the fact that they've done the thing that's irreversible, what are they supposed to do with it? And that's the hope that he's giving them. That's the forgiveness that he's offering them in Christ. He's saying that our repentance, if we acknowledge, yes, we're guilty of this, we have no recourse of our own making, there's no way I can get myself out of this, I need to lean on the forgiveness of the one who is offering it. That repentance is leading to an erasing of my sin. He says to them, he says, repent and turn back to God. Remember who he's talking to. They're not just Jews. They're faithful to the temple. They're there being religious. He says, turn back to God. Religious participation doesn't guarantee spiritual alignment with the heart, with the will, with the life of Jesus. We can do a lot of duties, a lot of good duties that, that, that others would look at and say, wow, they're pious, they're religious, they're clean living good folk. We could get that kind of response, but we can do it for very selfish reasons. We can do it in ways that are disconnected from what God is moving or doing because those things look uncomfortable. They look testy. They look, I don't know if we can do this. I don't know if I want to do this. I've got my own agenda going on here. But if I plug in and I check in religiously from time to time, then God's supposed to get off my back. We don't say those things out loud, but that's often the way that we live. Religious participation doesn't guarantee spiritual alignment with the mission or the heartbeat of Jesus. So Peter is saying, repent and turn back to God. Why? So that your sins may be blotted out. Does anybody remember the eraser mate? Taking you back to the eighties. I'm taking you back to trapper keepers. All right. This is like my whole junior high experience in the mid eighties was the fact that we had all this cool paraphernalia that we could start carrying to school and everything. I thought it was amazing that we could cover our books in, um, uh, grocery bags, right? The, the brown, and you could make your own notes and say, anybody do that? Come on, testify. Amen. There's a whole group of people who are like, you did what with what? <laughs> it's a great sign that we have a lot of younger people in our church, but it's making me feel quite old. And then they came out with the eraser made. It was the first pen that any of us would have seen, at least in the consumer world and everything, that we could erase ink off our papers and we were blown away by it. And then we would sometimes go, well, the impression is still in the, in the paper or something like that. But it worked for the most part. We could correct our mistakes while we were writing in pen. The people of that day were used to an ink that didn't have acid in it, apparently. So it didn't adhere to the parchment in a way that if you brought a wet sponge later, you could start erasing it from the parchment. And so that it would literally be gone and gone is the image they have in their mind when he says that your sins may be blotted out, that that wet eraser could come and just remove it. There wasn't anything in that ink that was trying to stay permanent. Because our sin has an answer. Our sin has a savior. And that because we repent, we acknowledge what we've done is wrong. We acknowledge that we haven't had uh, a faith in who God has sent in his one and only son. And we're guilty of that. And there's nothing we could do to uncrucify him. There's nothing we can do to 